Welcome, welcome. This is the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. I'm your host, Nura Yunus. I am thrilled to be back and hosting new episodes in partnership with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation on a number of topics related to anti-racism, particularly in spotlighting Canadians and organizations in these spaces. It's also Asian Heritage Month, a month dedicated to highlighting the many contributions by Canadians of Asian descent to Canadian society. This year's theme is recognition, resilience, and resolve, which feels particularly poignant in light of the stark rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the last year and the resilience by this community in combating it. In light of our new partnership with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, today's episode will dive into its creation, born out of the Japanese-Canadian Redress Agreement, following Canada's apology and settlement with Japanese Canadians for their internment and unjust treatment during World War II. I remember reading about this in history class during high school, but many Canadians didn't know that during World War II, Canada rounded up thousands of Japanese Canadians and put them in internment camps. It's a shameful part of our history that we'll dive into today. World War II is often described as a fight for liberty, democracy, and human rights around the world. It was the deadliest war in history, with active fighting across Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, and over 70 million people were killed, both civilians and in the military. It was a fraught six years, with over 30 countries involved. Canadian soldiers fought in the war, supporting the Allied forces in Europe and Asia, and as the war dragged on, we see how Canadians would turn against its own citizens. But let's go back to the 1940s. Canada and the Allied powers were at war against Germany, Japan, and Italy, who were called the Axis powers. On December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. This story we know well. It was immortalized by Hollywood in a movie of the same name. This attack on America brought the United States into the war, which, up to this point, they had really been avoiding. Nearly two weeks later, on December 18, 1941, Japan attacks Hong Kong, killing or imprisoning most of the 2,000 stationed Canadian soldiers. At this time, over 22,000 Japanese Canadians were living in Canada. Some of them were recent newcomers, but many of them had been living in Canada for decades. The children or grandchildren of Japanese immigrants, first or second-born Canadians. However, they had no voting rights and were not able to take up employment in many areas, so they mostly worked as fishers, canners, loggers, miners, sawmill workers, gardeners, or as entrepreneurs, opening businesses like grocery stores, restaurants, and cleaning businesses. The arrival of the first Japanese immigrant was in 1877 to New Westminster, British Columbia. He was a 22-year-old sailor named Manzo Nagano. Many more immigrants followed. A 1901 census showed there were 4,738 Japanese immigrants in Canada. As you can probably guess, their immigration wasn't very welcoming. Japanese immigrants were seen as undesirable, sneaky, and inferior. Many immigrants from Asia had experienced racism and discrimination on their arrival to Canada when they did make it. Canada had tried very hard to limit and stop the immigration from Asia. As the community grew, the public feared what they called the yellow peril. The idea that East Asians are an existential threat to Western society because, as I've mentioned in past episodes, Canada was always envisioned to be a white man's country. 
The attack of Pearl Harbor and Japan's involvement in World War II heightened public fears further on the Yellow Peril. What followed was a wave of unfounded fear against Japanese Canadians. Because remember, a lot of them were born and raised in Canada and had all their ties to Canada. Sensationalist press coverage and World War II propaganda prompted resentment against Japanese Canadians. I should note, too, that the same fear-mongering was happening in the United States. Politicians like Ian McKenzie, who was the federal cabinet minister from British Columbia, demanded action against Japanese Canadians. Ian McKenzie was quoted as saying, It is the government's plan to get these people out of British Columbia as fast as possible. It is my personal intention, as long as I remain in public life, to see that they never come back here. Let our slogan be, for British Columbia, no Japs from the Rockies to the seas. I have to say I'm uncomfortable even quoting him. The attack on Pearl Harbor really cemented Canadians' attitudes towards the Japanese Canadian community. Just days after the attack, Canadian Pacific Railway fired all of their Japanese Canadian staff. Other companies from several industries soon followed suit. Over 1,200 Japanese Canadian-owned fishing boats were seized by the RCMP. All Japanese Canadians over 16 years old were fingerprinted and photographed, forced to carry registration cards with them at all times. The federal government utilized several orders and councils to target and suppress the rights of Japanese Canadians. In January of 1942, the government deemed a 100-mile-wide strip along the British Columbia coast to be a protected area. They ordered that all male Japanese Canadians between the ages of 18 and 45 be removed entirely from the area and taken to road camps in the interior of the country. This was followed by the passing of another Order in Council a month later by Prime Minister Mackenzie King. Order in Council 1486 authorized the removal of all persons of Japanese racial origin and gave the RCMP the power to search without warrant, enforce a dusk-to-dawn curfew, and confiscate cars, radios, cameras, and firearms. One week later, the British Columbia Security Commission was formed, and they implemented the Japanese internment camps. You might be wondering, how could this happen to Canadian citizens? Well, it's important to know and understand the War Measures Act. The War Measures Act was a federal law adopted in 1914 at the beginning of the First World War. It gave extended powers to the government during times of war, invasion, or insurrection, allowing the cabinet to pass laws and regulations without going through parliament. The War Measures Act also allowed for the restrictions to civilian rights in the name of national security. Canada invoked the act during World War II, deeming Japanese Canadians as enemy aliens. This, despite Japanese Canadians being citizens who should have had all the same rights as any other Canadian. In its eight months of operation, the British Columbia Security Commission sent over 20,000 individuals to road camps, internment camps, and prisoner of war camps in our country. In early 1942, the Pacific National Exhibition Grounds at Hastings Park in East Vancouver were used to temporarily house Japanese Canadians who were being uprooted from the British Columbia coast. Over 8,000 detainees were processed through Hastings Park. Women and children were housed in livestock buildings. Any property that couldn't be carried was confiscated by officers. 
From these processing locations, where some people waited months to be relocated, internees were taken to ghost towns and detainee locations, or they were forced to work on sugar beet farms in Alberta and Manitoba. Families were often separated. Many men were being forced to work on railroads. At the sugar beet farms, internees were housed in tiny shacks that were uninsulated granaries and sometimes living in chicken coops. As an additional slap in the face, internees had to pay for all costs related to their internment. Their food, clothing, and housing came from their own savings and the proceeds of property sales that they were forced to make before their internment. The Canadian government had seized and sold their homes, property, and businesses to pay for their detention, usually at a fraction of its actual value. Intern camps had very poor conditions, like no electricity and no running water. Many of them also didn't have any working toilets. Any resistance from Japanese Canadians meant being sent to a prisoner of war camp. Listen to Mary Kitagawa share her experience of being interned in Vancouver. She was seven years old at the time. When we came here in April of 1942 and was led into this barn, it was, it was so stunning that we as human beings were being herded into this barn where the animals had just vacated and the smell of the urine and feces was so strong and the longer we stayed here, you know, our hair, our faces, our skin, our clothes were just permeated with the smell of the urine and feces. We were uh, bunked in these metal uh, bunk beds and these bunk beds were packed close together so there was no privacy among strangers. It was so degrading. It was so, so degrading to be considered no better than animals. There are many stories like Mary's. There are many Japanese Canadians who are still alive who remember that horrific experience of being interned. I remember hearing a talk by David Suzuki about his experience. He was five years old when his family was taken into an internment camp as well. And he remembers the experience quite differently because he was very young, but he was born and raised in Canada. And so were his parents. It was his grandparents that had immigrated to Canada. And to think that they were all treated as enemy aliens, despite being born and raised in this country. Despite no charges being laid against them, Japanese Canadians were denied the right to a fair trial under the War Measures Act. Recounting their experience at Hastings Park, Yukiharu Misuyabu, who was a teenager at the time, said, Hundreds of women and children were squeezed into the livestock building. Each family separated from the next by a flimsy piece of cloth hung from the upper deck of double-decked steel bunks. The walls between the rows of steel bunks were only five feet high, their normal use being to tether animals. In Canada, there were a total of 10 internment camps, three road camps, and two prisoner of war camps. Five self-supporting camps were scattered throughout Canada, which remained active for the duration of the war. Canada detained and dispossessed over 90% of the Japanese Canadian population in British Columbia. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. 
did you know? We are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with. If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch. We'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, nononsensepodcast at gmail.com, K-N-O-W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. The end of World War II didn't mean the end of the injustice and humiliation of the Japanese-Canadian community. The government wanted to remove all Japanese-Canadians from British Columbia altogether. Prime Minister Mackenzie King gave Japanese-Canadians two options. The first was to face deportation to Japan, or second, to disperse to provinces east of the Rocky Mountains. In 1946, approximately 4,000 former Japanese internees left Canada for Japan. There is a happy ending throughout all of the suffering of Japanese Canadians. From the end of their internment, and even during it, the Japanese Canadian community sought justice for their mistreatment by the Canadian government. Remember, many of them lost everything, their houses, property, businesses, family members, and who went through physical, emotional, and mental duress while interned. The first attempt for compensation for losses happened between 1947 to 1951, right after the end of World War II. This was known as the Royal Commission on Japanese Claims, or the Bird Commission. Unfortunately, this was an unsuccessful attempt. The Japanese Canadian Committee for Democracy, later renamed the National Association of Japanese Canadians, objected to the terms that they were given by the Bird Commission. The Bird Commission stated that compensation would be limited to property losses only. This was way too restrictive. It didn't address any of the civil rights abuses, the sale of property, damages to it, or psychological trauma. In 1950, Justice Henry Bird recommended $1.2 million compensation to all of the individuals, minus legal fee deduction. This amount comes up to, drumroll, $52 per person. Some Japanese Canadians were compelled to accept, believing that they wouldn't get much retribution otherwise. Others didn't. In in the 1970s, the Canadian government granted public access to government files for the first time. Historian Anna Sunahea confirmed that the Japanese-Canadian community were never a threat to national security, which was confirmed by both military and RCMP documents. The actions that were taken by the government were actually spurred by anti-Asian racist sentiments, not because of any kind of threat to Canada. Another wave of fighting for redress started in 1980s, when the United States Congress conducted hearings into the internment of Japanese Americans. The United States government later apologized and provided individual compensation. This led the National Association of Japanese Canadians to also seek redress, to hold the government of Canada accountable for the serious human rights violations suffered by the community between 1941 and 1949. They began negotiations that spanned many years with two different governments and five successive ministers of state for multiculturalism. Their campaign goals were simple. They wanted a negotiated redress settlement, they wanted formal acknowledgement and individual compensation, and they wanted a review and an amendment 
of the War Measures Act and the Charter of Rights. In the 1980s, activists began organizing small gatherings of community members who would share experiences of trauma and shame that followed their internment. This also pushed the grassroots redress movement. Key documents galvanized community activism. Joy Kogawa's wartime novel, Obasan, stirred emotion of the public. And Gomer Sunahara's The Politics of Racism utilized public government records to trace federal wrongdoing against the Japanese Canadian community. Price Waterhouse provided estimates of economic loss suffered by the community using records from the Office of the Custodian of Enemy Property. They estimated real property loss at $50 million and a total economic loss of $443 million. Some small factions were arguing against individual compensation and they tried to block the efforts at the redress, but public opinion was growing and it was on their side. By 1986, an Enveronics poll indicated that redress was supported by at least 63% of Canadians, and of these, 71% supported individual compensation. On September 22, 1988, an agreement was signed, and Prime Minister Brian Mulroney formally apologized to the Japanese Canadian community. So, how does all of this relate to the Canadian Race Relations Foundation? The Canadian Race Relations Foundation was created by the Government of Canada as a Crown Corporation in 1996 as part of the Japanese Canadian Redress Agreement. They officially opened November 1997, and over its 24 year history, the Canadian Race Relations Foundation has facilitated the development, exchange, and application of knowledge and expertise to eliminate racism and all forms of racial discrimination in our society. The government created a community fund aimed to undertake education, social cultural activities, and programs contributing to human rights. I encourage everyone to take a look at their website, linked in the show notes, where you can find a bevy of anti racism news and resources. The experience of Japanese Canadians during internment is a dark part of our country's history. It's difficult to imagine how our government was responsible in treating its citizens with such. Disdain and inhumanity. Only through the hard work and dedication of the Japanese Canadian community and its allies were they able to seek justice, and their activism has ripple effects. I was recently watching the news about the slavery reparations bill going through Congress in the United States. One of its advocates and writers was sharing that it was in the 1980s, while working with the Japanese Americans on their redress, that his hope was once again sparked. For justice for African American reparations. The Japanese American community and its organizations have been very vocal supporters of this recent and past reparations bills to go through the government. This was news to me, but I felt inspired by it. So glad to see a bond of solidarity between groups with different experiences, but who want similar outcomes. Justice. It's also a really important lesson from the Japanese Canadian experience. To remember that this kind of discrimination can and has happened since. It's been about 80 years since internment of Japanese Canadians, but we can't become complacent to think that something like this can't or won't happen again. Since 9 11, Muslim Canadians have been subjected to violence and discrimination in this country. The Quebec City mosque shooting was only four years ago. 
Every day now, we're hearing about attacks against Asian Canadians since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. When something horrible happens in some part of the world, it does affect Canadians and public opinion. It doesn't help also that there is so much misinformation and disinformation out there. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that people are individuals. We cannot label people with stereotypes. We cannot group them by stereotypes, and we should not treat people with stereotypes. Join us next week for the next episode. But in the meantime, engage with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. The handle is racism is nonsense. Racism period is period nonsense. If you're a community organizer who would like to collaborate with us, contact us at nononsensepodcast at gmail.com. Also in the show notes. This episode was researched by Beverly Osunzua, produced by Nicola. Jade Sullivan manages our communications. 